Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am thrilled to be joined by one of our most popular guests. The people demand another appearance from Mark Bergman. Mark Bergman is well known to our regular listeners as a political analyst, but that's just when he's moonlighting with us. Most of the time, he's a top shelf political consultant working for some of the biggest names you know around the country on the Democratic side of the ledger. And he has joined us before to kind of piece together what is going on in the national environment. And that's what we want to do today. We're one week out as we record this from Election Day. We want to figure out how we got here and where things are going. Mark, welcome back. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. I don't know which people you're talking about, but you know, they. I would be surprised if anyone's demanding me back. You all your fan were calling in. No, I'm kidding. You, you, exactly. uh, your episodes remain very popular in our podcast feed. I don't know, radio folks, feel free to hit us on Facebook and tell us what you think since we don't see the same data that we do with the pod. All right, so we're a week out. This is, I mean, first of all, you've been on campaigns like about a million of them. I've been on campaigns, maybe slightly fewer than you. What's going on inside the campaigns? right now. I want to talk about the overall environment, but like, what's like paint a picture for people who have never been a political operative, like what's happening a week out? A week out, you're basically doing nothing. You're like all the big decisions are basically made. The campaign plan is put together. It, you're trying to get the last bit of money to finance your last week of television, finance your GOTV operation, make sure that- Get out all, the vote. Yeah, get out the vote. And it's just, and then it's like the last week is execution mode. And, you know, it's, they, they say, they used to say in sports, it's all over, but the crying. And that's basically what week one is all about. It's all yeah, over, it, but the vote counting. It is amazing that now look, to be clear, if you are part of the field or get out the vote operation, you are busy. You are extremely busy. You're, you're going crazy right now. But if you're someone whose job is communications or you're a campaign manager, or you're a TV consultant like you are, there is not a lot to do. And I will say that if you're not deployed on election day itself, it is amazing. Like if you ever watch a, a political documentary like The War Room, election day itself for the people who are sort of running campaigns are sort of like, it's 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 the worst. It's actually the yeah. worst. You're sitting around, you're in a boiler room usually, meaning like not a literal one, but you're like in some kind of a room that the party has gotten where all the campaigns can sit you sit around and everyone pretends that they've just found out something interesting. They're like, oh, I have some turnout numbers from Turner's Falls or wherever. And it's like, ooh, interesting. Or like you're constantly doom scrolling Twitter. It, it's pretty agonizing. It, it is. It is. The difference is if you're on a higher profile race, you'll get some exit poll numbers around like four or five o'clock before the networks release them. And you'll have a sense of like, whether it's going to be a really, really bad night or a good night, or I don't know what's about to happen night. But at the end of the day, like on election day, it's the worst day to be a campaign operative because, you know, all the power is out of your hands and it's in the hands of the voters. Right. And we don't <laughs> want too much of that in this country. My goodness. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> basically that's part of the issue as a campaign. That's why it feels like it's the worst because you're out of control in that situation. There's nothing left to do except let the voters cast their ballots. So on election day, the voters take control. And frankly, that's the beauty of our democracy. 
Well, and one of the things that does happen, I, I mean, I'll pick up on this idea that things are a little out of control, because I think that actually ties well to the story of how we got here and what's what the dynamics are overall in this election. I will say that there is a little bit more going on. So let's say you're part of a get out the vote operation for a campaign. You're probably working in a coordinated way with a literal coordinated campaign, which is a legal term in, in many states with your party. You are actually doing stuff. You're actually checking. You can see at various polling locations whether people, you might have people monitoring whether people have showed up to vote. It's not for any nefarious, crazy right-wing conspiracy purpose. It's so that you know if your people, your registered Democrats, have showed up. And if they haven't, you're going to call people at phone banks or you're going to call people who are out on the street knocking on doors. You're going to send them to those remaining doors. And the thing is, it's kind of pointless to do that exercise because you're going to call everybody anyway because you don't believe people. Even if the election rule says that they voted, you're 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 just going to you're you're going to go for it anyway because there's nothing else to do. All that being said, all right, you just said there's this feeling that we're out of control. I always felt that that's kind of a good metaphor for what campaigns do anyway. It's a little bit like surfing. You can control your direction a little bit, but it's really kind of up to the ocean and that is sort of what the last few months ever since the summer have felt like to me. I'm going to tell you my story of what I think has happened since, let's say, June. And I want I want to play a little game here where you tell me what you agree with and what you think I'm full of it on. Okay. Sound good? Yeah, let's go. All right, here we go. So my story is that back in the spring, things were looking terrible for Democrats because we didn't have a lot to go on except for history, which says that midterm elections, especially in the first term for a new president, are bad for the party in power, losing an average of 37 seats. It's even higher than that if the president's approval rating is under 50 percent. And a lot of pundits are writing the classic, wow, it's going to be a midterm blowout against Democrats. Democrats weren't helping themselves because they had spent about a year arguing about the Build Back Better bill. And so on top of everything else, they looked feckless and high inflation. And so it was just a perfect storm of nasty. Then you got the Dobbs decision is thing number one. And thing number two is gas prices, average weekly gas prices in America peaked on June 13th. Those two things, Dobbs decision and the highest level of gas prices happened within one week of one another. After that point, gas prices continue to steadily march down week by week until they hit their national low point on September 19th. And at the same time, the news environment was all about abortion, the January 6th committee hearings, and the Mar-a-Lago raid. So you have gas prices going down and bad news for Republican and not a lot else in the national news. It was what you might call a good news environment for Democrats. And lo and behold, you see the generic ballot start to look better and better for Democrats. They pick up and in fact, go into a lead in most polls on the generic ballot, an average of somewhere between two and four points. And President Biden's approval rating picks up after Democrats pass the Inflation Reduction Act in early August, which brings Democrats back home who were telling pollsters, eh, not so sure, not feeling so good about Biden. All of a sudden, they're feeling a lot better. Then what happens? Well, I mentioned that low point 
for gas prices, September, the week of September 19th, 2022. After that, they start to creep up a little bit because we hit the shoulder period in the annual energy price cycle in the fall, and there is continued price shocks from Ukraine. And on October 5th, Saudi Arabia announces that they are leading OPEC in cutting oil production by 2 million barrels a day, which leads to an approximately three-week price spike in gasoline, which we're just, just now beginning to see come down. Lo and behold, things begin to turn south for Democrats once Republicans are on the air saying things about inflation, crime, and immigration. And once the overall news environment turns against Democrats, that was a super long story that I just told there. That's my story. I think that it is mostly about what's happening in the news and the overall environment and most of all gas prices, which have an 80% correlation with Biden's approval rating. What do you make of that story, Mark Bergman? I don't disagree with any of it, except I think you're missing the piece about the Fed and their actions. Mm. And interest rates spiking towards the end, towards the spring, and then towards the end of the summer, both which sent the stock market tumbling. And sending the stock market tumbling gives people a feeling, like whether it impacts them directly as much as it impacts wealthy people, gives them a feeling the economy is going down the tubes. And because that has is how people are conditioned to feel. Interest rates have gone up. Your monthly credit card statements go up every month. Your home, your home mortgage payments, if you have a variable interest rate, or even if you're trying to buy a house, that goes up. Interest rates really affect people. And, and, and higher interest rates mainly affect non-college educated working class voters who are the independent voters that decide these elections, especially non-college educated women. And I, I do think the fact that the Democrats did not speak and the president did not speak more forcefully against the Fed and the interest rates has been a, a mistake for the party. Mm. I think we should, as, as a party, have condemned those interest rate hikes. And let the Republicans try to explain, let the Republicans try to explain, oh, well, this is about inflation and we're only having to hike these rates because of inflation. Like we should have been hammering this, saying that this is a bad economic policy that hurts the working poor. Instead, what we're saying is nothing. We're saying we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which nobody believes actually reduces inflation. It's just, I, I think some of our messaging was wrong. I think also, I think at the end of the day, you know, the the reason why our, our party has taken a turn for the worse heading into the fall was that polling is a lagging indicator. Mm. And all, and you remember how people get benchmark polling. They all get their benchmark polling and their polling done around right before Labor Day, right at August. And all of that polling was saying abortion, 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 abortion is the way to go. The Fed hikes up interest rates, gas prices go up, and the Democrats run their entire month of September on what the polling said in August, which is abortion. And it was the economy. And we just kind of like missed that, that, that like our polling kind of missed where the news cycle was going. I, I just want to, clue, for one second, you just said something really interesting that kind of gets into the mechanics of campaigns that is one of these like unintended consequences type things. I just want to hit on that for a second. When you refer to benchmark polling, could you just explain to people what that means, what the purpose of your benchmark polling and that particular timing is? Because it's, it's, yeah. it's critical. Yeah, because most people are not on 
television at a high level over the summer. Most people kind of either they go up or they're 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 up at a lower level in the summer. Then you do a poll right before Labor Day when the campaign's about to kick off, and it kind of gives you a sense of where you're going to go. Most of the congressional races go up around Labor Day or a couple of weeks after Labor Day, depending on how expensive your state is. And they'll go up and they'll base their polling on what they're getting in August. And because they're going to go up in September. So the party's messaging going into September is based on what the polls are telling the operatives in August. What the polls were telling the operatives in August was go all in on abortion all in, 100%. And we had evidence in New York 18, where we won a special election on abortion, the Kansas referendum, the polling all said go, and then that's where the party went. And then you had all these economic factors that we just talked about hit in the confluence right around Labor Day. And the party was talking about a woman's right to choose. And the voters were like, the stock market tank, the interest rates are spiking, gas prices are going up. Like, what are you talking about? Well, there are two things that connect in here. And I, I just, this is just one of those very interesting timing things that I think it would be a bit like if you had a big event, let's say your wedding, and you were, you had to make a go, no go decision. You're, you're doing it outdoors. You had to make a go, no go decision a week ahead of time. By the way, this happened to me. Okay, my wife and I had to make a go no go decision on what we were going to do, not whether we're going to have the wedding, but like, are we going to have a tent? Are we going to be completely outside? And we had to make that decision a week in advance. You know what happened? Hurricane Ernesto changed course and hit our wedding site. Now, luckily, we had made the right decision and we had gotten a tent. But the point yeah. is, campaigns are very much in this boat. And so a lot of the time, you're generally right based on the indications you get in a benchmark poll. You're not going to be off by so much that it really makes a difference. But it is an interesting idea to me that the issue environment may have tilted just enough in, in late August and early September to make a difference between the time that you're doing that critical benchmark poll, that go-no-go -no -go decision on what your, what your key TV messages are going to be. and yeah. And when things shifted, and I will tell you that I was having conversations with operatives, including some Republicans, including on this show in right. August, where I said, look, conditions are getting better. If things continue going in this direction, are Republicans going to be in a rough position because they put too many eggs in the inflation basket? If, if gas prices keep going down like this, then yeah. their messaging is going to be all off. Well, the response was generally, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. But the reverse happened. And it was Democrats who had kind of put so many eggs in other baskets that we really weren't quite aligned the right way with the voters. A hundred percent. That being said, the Democrats kind of course corrected in October. And as we go through these individual races eventually on, on the show, you'll see what ended up happening in races where we may end up winning is in addition to going on abortion, we kind of moved to cost in October, but we also did something that is critical to win in a bad climate is to obliterate your opponent. And the, you know, in a lot of the races where we probably will be successful come election night, it will be because the opponent is an unacceptable alternative.
Right. And you and I actually are celebrating the 10 year anniversary of running a race together where that was essentially all we could do, given the environment was just make our opponent unacceptable. Now, look, I just wrote an article in Newsweek last week about why debates suck. And in large part, it's because we never do this function of actually talking to voters about government or the country or our future or the economy, you know, that thing that is the number one issue that voters tell us they care about. We never do any of that because we're so wrapped up in our political campaigns in trying to obliterate the opposition. But that is unfortunately sort of the go-to move. And it's interesting. No, you're right. We should get into that when we do the race by race. Let's just hit one more point. You just alluded to it a moment ago, and then we'll take a, a break for the for the radio listeners. We did not do that pivot onto an economic message. And look, it's hard when when the wind is kind of neutral or a bit against you. It's hard to, to go positive and tell your story. But there is kind of, it, to me, and I think you agree with this, a big gap out there. There's an astonishingly good economic story to tell. And the New York Times reviewed this, like of all the ad dollars that we put on, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars we put into ads in, in the campaign, in this cycle, almost none of it is talking about the economy. Why? Because our polls are telling us on the Democratic side, you don't want to get onto that issue because the, it, it's not advantageous. It helps Republicans more, but it means we're never contesting it. We're never fighting for that turf at all. And we have a story to tell. 2021 was the biggest single year of job creation in American history. We saw the biggest decrease in people receiving unemployment benefits in history. We've created more manufacturing jobs than in any year in the last 30 years. We've signed up 6 million new people who now have healthcare coverage. So the list just goes on and on. It's been an historic period of economic achievements. There is a story to tell here, but because we sort of never really found a time or a way to tell that story, we did seem to leave the field wide open for nothing but Republican inflation messaging. That's what I'm seeing. I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's hard to blame the campaigns for that, though. No, no, no. And, and I, I, I think a lot of the blame falls at the White House's feet because to build an economic narrative that goes against what the press wants to talk about, which is doom and gloom, that requires years like that requires months and months and months of consistent economic messaging from the White House. And instead of doing that, we spent months and months and months and months, almost a year and a half negotiating with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to get anything back. I mean, I think the big lesson for Democrats or any party that comes into power in Washington is you better pass your agenda really fast because you don't have a lot of time to message it for the midterms. Like you got to do it in a month. You got to do it FDR style, fast. I mean, that has been learned by Bill Clinton. That has been learned by Barack Obama on healthcare, where he, where they negotiated with Max Baucus for God knows how long on healthcare. And that lesson is again being learned by Joe Biden. You and even then, it may not help you because if yeah. you do it fast, there's recency bias, there's kind of mental availability bias, yeah. and voters may forget about it unless it's all you talk about for two years. That's all it's, you got to talk about. Yeah, it's incredibly hard to do. Now, let's turn to the the individual story, because really what I'm seeing is, in and look, it's so hard to tell. It's so, so hard to tell. There's an argument out there that there's going to be some connection, some correlation between all of these big races. 
but it's unpredictable. It's, it's hard to know if that's true and it's hard to know what the connection might be and whether it might be geographic or if certain types of races are all gonna break one way or the other. Best we can do is just sort of go race by race. Even though I've argued, and I think you agree that what really matters for the balance of power in America is kind of looking from the bottom up and looking at state legislatures, yeah. looking at secretary of state races, let's do the thing that everybody does because it's, it's the sexy stuff that people care about. Let's start with the U.S. Senate, maybe. Yeah, sure, sure. All right, all right. Pick a race. What what race is sort of the the number one that you're watching most? Uh, it's it goes back. It's always New Hampshire. I think New Hampshire is often the sign of the size of the wave. I think if Maggie Hassan gets reelected, I think we have a really good shot to hold the Senate because mm. it will be a sign that. Because New Hampshire, you live by the wave and die by the wave. If the wave sweeps over you in New Hampshire, it is massive nationally. And New Hampshire, the results tend to come in early. We'll have a pretty good sense if Maggie gets reelected, it's not going to be as bad as we might think it's going to be nationally. So that's a race I'm really watching. The other one is Georgia. And, you know, can, uh, you know, can is Herschel Walker's baggage enough to take him down? And I think, I think it does. I think it does. I think voters in Georgia, I think Georgia is a more democratic state. And I think that the voters down there are not going to accept Herschel Walker. I think Raphael Warnock has been a good Senator. He's done nothing but represent the state well. And I think he's going to get reelected. So if, if you see Georgia and New Hampshire go to the democratic column, that's a sign that we're probably going to hold Arizona and we have a puncher's chance in Pennsylvania. If that's the case, we're 50-50, if not, you know, 51, mm. 49. Well, I will note, first of all, since we're starting with New Hampshire, which, hey, give the people what they want since we're on air on the radio in New Hampshire. I, I do agree with you. I, you could almost give the inverse of that case, which is if Don Bolduc defeats Maggie Hassan, that would be a sign that it's like the Jeff Foxworthy routine, signs you might be a redneck, signs you might have a red wave. Don Bolduc overcomes Maggie Hassan. One thing to yeah, keep, I, go. Yeah, and I think if Don Bolduc beats Maggie Hassan, then Custer loses and Pappas loses. And it's just, it's a wipeout in New Hampshire. And you and I have lived through that. And, you know, that was a sign that it was really bad nationally. I mean, the right. year Maggie Hassan got defeated for a state Senate race, was 2010. And it like, it didn't matter. If you were a Democrat on the ballot, you lost. And if she loses, that's the type of night we're, we're going to have. Yeah. And I mean, for your, for our national listeners, what we're talking about is the first and second congressional district. And it is interesting. There's very little, when we get to talking about house races, it's so tricky because there's so little national, there's so little gold standard polling, well done polling that you, you can trust and that is not being done by one of the campaigns with an agenda. But that said, 538 is watching the second congressional district of New Hampshire. People know well, my, my sometime co-host on this show, Paul Hodes, used to represent that district. That's what the one that Annie Custer currently represents. National listeners may recognize her from her, her State of the Union white pantsuit and raising the roof gesture, which was parodied on Saturday Night Live. She is up only four points in the polling average. And this is a, it's a lean D district. 
I, again, not saying that I trust the polls per se, but and her opponent's nuts. And that and that's the thing. This is one of those districts where Democrats meddled in the Republican primary to try to get the crazier one who they thought they could beat. So again, keep an eye on the second congressional district of New Hampshire. If I, the first district is much more of a toss up, it literally swings back and forth almost every cycle. So that, that could go either way. If the second congressional district is a Republican win, that is a sure sign that we are in for a bad night as the Democratic yes. Party. What, what did you make of the Fetterman Oz, the Fetterman debate, and kind of how things stand there. It's interesting. Chuck Schumer was caught on a hot mic revealing that internal polling indicates that that the, the debate did not seem to have hurt Fetterman that much. Um, there were three polls that came out that were taken during or, or right after the debate, and they seem to show Oz with a little bit of a lead, but they're not from particularly highly rated pollsters. And then we got the New York Times Siena poll just fresh this morning, showing Fetterman with a six point lead, which is comparatively massive. What are you seeing there? I, I you know, I, I don't have a good sense of if the debate will actually matter in a race like this. I just don't think it matters. I think it's more you have to also look at the governor's race in Pennsylvania where Josh Shapiro is likely going to absolutely decimate the Republican nominee. I think his name is Mastriano. Mastriano, um, yeah. And I don't think that's going to be an insignificant piece for, towards Fetterman potentially holding on and winning this race. I do think Fetterman's challenge may not have been the debate, but may have been that NBC interview, um, which kind of gave people an, an eye into like, hey, is this guy really up for the job? And the debate just kind of like created confirmation bias for it. At the end of the day, like I do think partisan advantage will go to Fetterman because of the governor's race. And I think he pulls it out. Mm. What do you make of the situation in Georgia? You would think it reminds me a little bit of that Saturday Night Live skit from 35 years ago where you had the Mike Dukakis character and the George H.W. Bush character debating. And they have Dana Carvey doing George H.W. Bush, giving a total non-comprehensible word salad of an answer. And Dukakis says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Democrats have got to feel that way a little bit with Herschel Walker, who doesn't believe that evolution could exist because we still have apes in the world, real thing he said, who is under delusions of being a police officer, who has threatened to kill a former girlfriend, who has paid for not one, but two former girlfriend's abortions. And yet the polling average shows Warnock only up a point. And after the revelations about the first abortion news, I guess, with the, with the former girlfriend, Herschel Walker led all Republicans nationally in online fundraising between October 1st and October 19th. I mean, it's it's just enough to make your head explode. Is your head exploding? What, what are you taking away from that one? I take away that it's partisanship. This country is more partisan than it's ever been before. And they don't care. The Republicans and the Republican donors do not care 
about his problems. He is a Republican vote in the Senate. If it puts them in control of the U.S. Senate, they're going to put them in there. They don't care. Like, that's the nature of the game right now. It's like you're either red team or blue team, and that's it. That's the country. There, You get a few people, a few, a very small amount of people who are willing to cross the aisle, but it's not a lot. Not a lot anymore in this country. So that being said, it, it's frustrating that you want to think that these negatives have impact. But I go back to a Senate race. I think it was 2004. It was Tom Coburn against this guy is a congressman named Brad Carson. Oh, I remember and, Brad well. Yeah, and Brad Carson ran a spot, which was true, that as a doctor, Tom Coburn sterilized a woman while performing an abortion against her consent. All true. And the response from the Coburn campaign was that Brad Carson met Hillary Clinton once and might have liked her. And that's all it took. Sometimes it's just partisanship wins over these issues. Well, that's depressing as heck. Let's let's talk about Nevada. Th- this race has been cast by not just national analysts, but John Ralston, the dean of the Nevada Political Press Corps, as a bit of a referendum on whether Harry Reid's legendary turnout and political operation would continue to hold up for the incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Anything standing out to you there that the polling average has it dead even? It's so it's I, I'm not sure it's about the turnout. I think it's a matter of what is going on inside the Hispanic community for the Democratic Party. And that is what's going to be the case in Nevada is are we still do we still have an advantage, a sizable advantage among Hispanics in this country? If the answer is that continues to dwindle, not just in states like Florida or Texas, but also extends into the Southwest, into Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, then we're going to have problems in a state like Nevada. Like our wins are built on, on having a good advantage in the Hispanic community. If the Republicans are able to kind of eat into that advantage, then we have a real problem. Same thing hold true for Arizona, where Mark Kelly is on the ballot? Yeah, I think that that is important there. But Arizona is a weird animal. I've worked in that state a bunch, and one of our clients is, is there. And it's just it's a weird animal. There's obviously a lot of Hispanic vote, and that's very important. But that, that state is basically two counties that, that are decided elections. It's Maricopa County and Pima County. Democrats do well in Pima. Republicans have traditionally done well in Maricopa, and to win as a Democrat in that state, you have to either break even or barely squeak out a win in Maricopa, and that's a big that's a big if for Kelly and 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 the gubernatorial candidate is like how could you how well can you do in Maricopa to offset what will likely be a very large turn on the rural part of the state. The Hispanic community in Arizona, which is does center in those two counties I just referenced, I, I think that I think that state is going to likely turn not just on Hispanics but on what happens among white voters in Maricopa to offset what will likely be extraordinary turnout in the rural parts of the state. Do you think we have a fighting chance in Wisconsin where Mandela Barnes seems in recent polling to be staging a little bit? A bit of a comeback after a dip at the in the earlier part of the month. Well, that that race is turning has turned on crime almost entirely. You know, you see that in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, where the Republicans really went after the Democrat on crime and some things that 
Barnes and Beasley had, had said previously, and they've just hammered that. And it's a question of, can they recover from that? You know, it's not just the economy that's hurting a lot of our candidates. It's stances that were taken in 2020 that are coming back to haunt a lot of these candidates. An example of not always uh, following what Twitter says, but maybe wait for the voters to weigh in before you start saying things. But that is, it has certainly hurt those candidates. So we'll see whether they can kind of come back from those, those hits on crime. Let's do just one more on the Senate. Are Democrats going to look back after this election cycle? Kind of like they did after 2016 on the presidential and and said, gosh, we, we really, we should have spent more time in the Rust Belt states. Are they going to look back and say, oh, we really should have put more into Tim Ryan in Ohio or Sherry Bustos in North Carolina? Do you think those are, are, are winnable with resources or have Democrats triaged their money the right way? You, you never, it's hard to, it's like hard to like go into and play Monday morning quarterback with the way that the DSCC has funded their races. They clearly have a strategy here. They're executing the strategy. And it's easy to look back after knowing the results and saying, oh, if we only put more money in Ohio or Florida or North Carolina, it's like you don't know until the votes are counted. All you can do is base your decisions based on polling. So I'm not going to like say, oh, they should have put more in Ohio. Ohio is the state that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Overwhelmingly. You've got a governor's race that is likely going to be a 20-point win for Mike DeWine. Like, for Tim Ryan to win a race like that, he would have to defy gravity of the state of Ohio. And I think the Democrats have put a bunch of money into North Carolina. So, like, you just, like, when you're sitting there making those decisions, you're basing your your decisions not on whether they can get to 47 to 48%. You're basing decisions, can they get to 50.1? And that, in those two points from 47 to, or three points to 50 is like, in a lot of those states, it's pretty impossible. Mm, all right, let's, let's change gears real quick and talk about the house. Obviously 435 seats, it's, it's tough. We can't talk about all of those races. Any that you're you already mentioned keeping an eye on on New Hampshire, anything else standing out to you that is a good a good indicator that people out there could keep an eye on as we head down the stretch here? Yeah, the races to look at are are clearly we have to pull an inside straight to hold the house. Like that is a fact. Democrats would admit that we're up by five seats. We got screwed in redistricting by some of it was by our own good government, nonpartisan redistricting and the Republicans didn't do that and they stole seats and whatever, like that's a whole nother show. But like, we have to win all of the toss-ups. If you look at the Cook Report or the other rating agencies, we have to win all the toss-ups to win. So if we're not winning those toss-up races come election night, then the house is probably gone. But it's really a question of how far does it go and how many seats do we truly lose? You know. If we're losing seats like New Hampshire 2, Connecticut 5, Rhode Island 2, Maine 2, your old stomping grounds, like it's going to be, we're going to lose upwards of 30 seats. That's where I would really be like focusing your eyes on election night is 
look at the New York seats, the, the seats that kind of all are around the suburbs of the city of New York. Look at all those New England seats. If those seats start to fall in mass, it's going to be a really tough night. I would just add to that that Nate Cohn made a very similar point in the New York Times that if polling, it's so hard to tell from, from polling, obviously, and there is a pattern. I, historically, in the last 20 years, on average, pollsters have under-predicted Republican performance by about two points. And so if, if, if there is a miss here, and if it's a miss on the same range as we saw in 2016 or, or 2020, you would end up with a result where Republicans would have 237 seats in the House in advantage of 19 seats and a, a pretty solid majority, you know, about the size of the majority that Democrats gained in 2018. So it, again, it kind of goes back to the question that we led off this segment with, which is how much are things tied together and in what ways are they tied together? If, if it's sort of a wavy type dynamic. And so, for example, if the, if the real driver here is, no pun intended, gas prices, and if gas prices do fairly well in the next week, and that kind of changes what's most salient and what's most on people's minds as they decide whether to actually show up and vote, and maybe for those few people who are, who are genuinely on the fence, then we could see a relatively correlated result where Democrats do a little bit better than anticipated across the board. The other factor that I would just note is that there has been less polling going on. I'm not, th this is not a polling focused show, although we do cover it a fair amount. You know, 538 does a lot more on this. One thing that Nate Silver has been pointing out is that because of the shaky performance that pollsters have gone through in 2016 and 2020, they may be a little gun shy. We've entered the portion of the race where if they put out a poll that they don't feel 100% confident in, they may they may just not put it out at all, or they may just choose not to poll as much because they want to be super duper confident, which means we're seeing fewer reliable, gold standard, well-known national outfits doing the kinds of polls that we rely on. We're seeing more polls coming from less trusted sources or from the campaigns themselves. And who knows? Who knows what patterns may be emerging in all of those? So it, to me, it... it there's no reason to doubt the forecast of maybe about an 80% chance that Republicans take the House, as you say, an inside straight for Democrats to hold on to it. But I guess what I'd be watching is exactly that, that, that list of races that you rattled off, because if you see a couple of those fall, you can just predict that the ones further in the Midwest and out West are probably going to have the same pattern. Yeah, 100%. I think there's two factors that are coming out here. A, there's turnout, right? Are did the Democratic base show up? Is there an increase in young voter, young, young, young people voting, young women voting? And does that kind of offset the, the independents turning against the Democrats? And then there's a whole nother factor of Republicans turning out at higher levels than ever seen before in the midterm. We saw it in Virginia a year ago, which is often the tea leaves for the midterm, which what happened was Democrats turned out at good levels for an off year. Like we were happy with that turnout. What happened was the Republicans in the state turned out at presidential year levels in the rural parts of the state. 
And that just made it, it just impossible for the Democrats to hold on, even in a bluish state like Virginia. So that is going to be my, in my view, what I'm looking for is, is there something to offset the massive enthusiasm gap that Democrats are seeing? And is abortion that issue that raises the Democratic enthusiasm to what we need it to match the Republicans? Well, we've got a couple of minutes left in the radio show. We'll probably have to wrap the pod as well. So we've done it. We've done the same thing that the entire Democratic Party always does. We have focused on the bright, shiny object. We talked about the Senate. Then we talked about the House. And then it's like, oh, yeah, there are governorships and state legislatures where the real power in America is. We are the worst. We are doing the worst thing. But Let's go there. You know, quick hit. What what stands out to you in among governors and state legislatures? Well, it, it it's I think state legislatures are often tied to the top of the ticket. And if we're having a tough night on members of Congress and Senate, we're going to have a tough night in the state legislature. And that will be magnified because of gerrymandering around the country. Governors, I think you're going to see governors be the bright spot for the Democrats. State officials are overperforming their federal components in almost every state. So incoming governors, I think we're going to see a lot of incumbent governors get returned. I guess there could be some surprises like in Wisconsin or in Michigan, but I think it's unlikely. I think we're going to see most of our incumbents that were elected four years ago get returned to another four. And I think we have an opportunity to maybe get a few seats. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. And of course, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm most focused on the, the, the trouble spots, the Arizonas of the world, the Wisconsin's of the world, where you have candidates and you might end up with a trifecta. You might end up with a unified state government, which is where the real skullduggery could happen, especially with people who are big lie adherents, have basically promised like, I am going to come in and wreck the election system to promote Donald Trump and help Republicans. That, that, would, be my, <laughs> that would be my biggest fear. Yeah, that would be bad, right? That would be bad. But that's what the courts are for. That's what the United States Congress is for. Like, before we get to 2024 and what the impact of 2022 on 2024, we have to let the voters engage in what the voters do, which is voting, before we start talking about, like, a doomsday scenario in two years. A novel idea that that voters should actually be able to vote, express their views freely, and that our government should reflect their opinions. On that, I agree, unexplained fires are a matter for the courts. We're going to have to let you go, and we'll all just cross our fingers for the next week. And, you know, if you're out there and you're volunteering, keep working on those campaigns. All right, Mark Bergman, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Matt. 